Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. So today we are joined by Dr. Raymond Ayazi to discuss the latest in macular hole repair. Dr. Ray Ayazi is a vitreoretinal surgeon at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Ayazi's clinical interests include retinal degenerative disease, as well as all aspects of vitreoretinal surgery, with a special interest in complex retinal detachment repair associated with diabetes, trauma, and proliferative vitreoretinopathy. He's also heavily involved in research, including retinal prosthesis development and nanoparticle-based drug delivery, and has been developing stem cell and retinal transplantation-based treatments for macular disease. He's a recipient of the Visionary Award from Foundation Fighting Blindness, and is a former HEAP Fellow, NAP Fellow, was awarded the Ron Michaels Fellowship. And in 2021, Dr. Ayazi elevated to Fellow of the American Society of Retinal Specialists as well. So today we're really excited. Thanks for being here, Dr. Ayazi. Let's talk about macular hole repair. Sure, thanks for inviting me. So, you know, macular hole is one of those things we, we see commonly in the retina practice. Patients come in with a lot of concern because they're the first thing they hear about this surgery, the fact that they need to be face down for a week or so, and in some cases more, and they're relieved to hear that we don't use this approach. In my practice, we do a no face down approach to macular hole repair. That's pretty rare. Uh, it turns out that less than 0.1% of retina surgeons are doing it in a no face down method. And I think that's ultimately going to change. But right now, there's only a few places in the country where a patient can go for a no face down approach. And, and we have patients flying in from all over the country and even the world to get their procedure done here. Ray, can you expand? I'd love to know just because I've been able to touch since I did my training in retina. I don't spend that much time in your, in your hallway. I just love the opportunity to send you my patients. Can you share with me what in a standard practice of a macular hole repair what is a patient typically in a typical office across the country, what are they instructed to do and what are they burdened by in their healing process? The dialogue goes something like this. The doctor will see the patient. The patient's complaint is usually central vision loss. Whenever I look at something, I don't see it. And that's because obviously there's a, a defect in the center of the fovea and, and the patient wants that fixed because they can't read, they can't recognize faces and they're concerned that Either it could happen to the other eye or that their vision could worsen in this eye. And the surgeon will explain, you know, we have surgical ways of fixing this. We're very successful. Uh, in general, in the United States, 95% success rate on a single procedure is common. That success rate is much lower in Europe because they combine their macular hole repair with cataract surgery, which I think adds some complexity to the procedure and their, and their success rates are commensurately lower. But the dialogue is, it goes something like this. I'm going to offer you vitrectomy surgery to repair your macular hole. And we're going to ask that you're face down for a week or more. And this is really important for the successful outcome of the procedure. And what that does is it transfers a lot of the responsibility for success and consequently a good outcome on the patient. So patients start to express grave concern. They're worried. They're nervous wrecks because they feel as though if they don't maintain their face down positioning, they're going to mess up their surgery and they're going to go blind. Hmm. So prior to doing a no face down approach, I recognize this dynamic. I recognize that some of the responsibility for surgical success was a, a disclaimer that if you don't do this face down approach, 
then you're going to have perhaps a recurrence of your macular hole and, and we'll have to go back and do something about that. Uh, fortunately, I was trained early on with a, a colleague, Dr. Puckman, who did not use a face-down procedure. His success rates at the time, over 20 years ago, were only in about 80% success range. And so I worked subsequently to refine the surgery to bring that up to the current standard, which is probably greater than 95% single surgery success. And it's certainly not inferior to methods that employ face down. And what we basically learned was that we just have to do more meticulous surgery than we might otherwise do. We have to do a more complete vitrectomy. We pay a lot of attention to membrane peeling. And on post-operative day one, we have a, a 95% or greater fill of gas. And fundamentally, patient can be in almost any position and their, and their bubble is going to act as a Band-Aid on that macular hole. Has the gas changed over the years? Early on, we used a longer acting bubble and that was a C3FA bubble that lasted for two months. Now the predominant uh, bubble that we use here at Mayo is two and a half weeks duration, which is much easier on the patient. I did a study in around 2015 looking at chronic macular holes. So the original study that we published was a case series of 68 consecutive cases of all comers. And these were very large holes, holes that were quite chronic, even up to 20 plus years open. We found that by doing this no face down approach, we had this very high success. It was 100% successful in all of these 68 consecutive cases. And so the confidence interval, interval there is about 95 to 100%. But then I, I looked at a subset of chronic macular holes, macular holes that were present for longer than one year duration. And I found that in a subsequent series, that if a patient had a hole that was there for greater than one year, there was a, about an 85% single surgery success with the short acting bubble. And so I go to longer acting bubbles. So I use a two month bubble in patients with a macular hole that's one year or greater duration. And we've gotten up to the standard 95 plus percent success rate on a single procedure with that. Dr. Ayazi, does the size of the hole make a difference to you? Because initially I think that was kind of the concern, there's a meta-analysis that was saying maybe the size of the hole depends on whether or not you can do the face-down positioning. But in your 2020 retina paper, two-thirds of your patients had really large holes, over a thousand microns. So how does that play into your surgical decision-making? That's a great question. You know, it, it is commonly thought that a hole, that a macular hole greater than 400 microns is somehow harder to repair. And we've not made that observation. So when I go to meetings and people talk about holes that were greater than 400, I think, wow, those are like slam dunks for our procedure. And so we don't really stratify on the basis of macular hole size because I haven't found a distinction. Now, part of that may be that the membrane peeling that we do is, is rather extensive. So we do an 8,000 micron peel. We peel the ILM from arcade to arcade. Why is that relevant? Well, when a macular hole forms, either due to a taut posterior hyoid or after the macular hole has formed, there's a reactive response within the retina and there's a, a gliosis or gliotic contraction of the inner retina, which reduces the compliance of the retina. The retina is naturally a very compliant structure, meaning if you push on it, it moves very easily. So it, it is easily influenced by forces that are applied to it. That means that's the mechanical definition of compliance. By peeling these taut membranes, we're restoring the retina's natural compliance. So it can then move so that the macular hole closes much more easily. 
And by doing a broad membrane peel, we're liberating a lot more retina so that it makes it a lot easier for these folds to close. So we've not observed any change in success rate based on macular hole size. Quite the contrary, all of these holes respond similarly. And I think it's because we're addressing that mechanical constraint of the membrane causing the, the retina to lose compliance. We're restoring that natural compliance. Are there any other post-op challenges that you worry about with your technique, with depending on the gas or, or the no face-down positioning, IOP, or, or any other concerns that make it special? That's a great question. You know, so specifically, you know, what, how do we talk to patients? You know, we have to educate them a bit. So I explain to patients, you know, this is your face and this is your eye. And I explain that I don't care what position their face is in. But I do request that they do a little bit of reading after each hour of face forward, eyes forward positioning. So if they're looking straight ahead, just like we are at each other, looking face forward, eyes forward, I ask the patient to spend 15 minutes in the eye down position. So they basically, they don't, I don't care what position their head is in. I just ask them to read something for 15 minutes. And what that does is it reduces the effect of the bubble in pushing the lens iris diaphragm forward. Because in some patients who are phakic with quite large lenses, they are at risk for angle closure with a bubble in the eye looking straight ahead full time. So we do ask that they just move their eyes downward a little bit. And so patients nowadays have all kinds of electronic readers. They, they read books, they watch their videos on their laptops, on their electronic device. So it's quite easy for them to do a little bit of eye down positioning. And this is a minimal requirement for patients that are superphagic, it's not as big of a deal. But for those patients with fakia, we do ask them to spend a little bit of time with their eyes in a downward position, which is a much better situation than being face down. So much and easier. Co and commentary on sleeping? Can they sleep in any position, including their back? So we ask that they don't sleep on their back. And we recommend that, you know, if they're concerned about this, then they prop some pillows or something under. And in some cases, patients find it really useful to wear a backpack, believe it or not while they sleep. And they make, uh, for sleep apnea patients, they make backpacks that just have an air vessel in them so you don't sleep on your back. And I've had patients swear by that approach. So many of my patients will just put a, a backpack on stuffed with towels and that avoids their sleeping on their back. But that's true of physicians who use a face down approach as well. If a patient's laying on their back, then that bubble can push the lens iris diaphragm forward and their ILP can go up. Plus the mechanism, you know, a lot of people think that the bubble needs to physically push or force the retina closed. And that's really not the case. What we're doing here is we're using the surface tension of that bubble to seal the inner aspect of the hole. And it's the retina pigment epithelial pump that draws fluid out from within the hole, thus allowing those edges of the compliant retina to oppose. And what we want is we want that apposition to occur long enough so that the retina heals in the closed position. If a person is laying on their back, then that bubble isn't really giving us that band-aid effect on the inner macular hole. And so it's much better if they're laying on their side. So, you know, and certainly for a first-time hole coming in, you've shared with us that the size isn't as much of a predictor to use this technique. I would certainly love to have retinal hole repaired by you if I can go about my life and be upright. But when in your practice... Are you finding that patients will come and say, hey, I'm going to be upright for you. And you actually say, no, for your hole, we can't. And I, I just, or are there settings, whether it's recurrent holes or in conditions 
with uh, vitreoretinal yeah, adherence issues, conditions, Marfan's, Ehlers-Danlos, any, are there times where you actually do tell them we have to go back to the traditional positioning? So the answer is that we don't prospectively plan on that. There are no patients that require, that require it to be face down at all. There is a subset of patients, about 1% or less, where on post-operative day one, there is not an adequate gas fill in the eye. So we need to have a 95% or greater gas fill usually. Maybe a 90% would be fine. But if they have an 80% gas fill for some reason, like for example, there was a leak of gas overnight, or perhaps the concentration of gas was such that it didn't turn out to be the appropriate concentration, in rare instances, that bubble is 80% or less. And in those rare patients, we do ask them to be face down. It works out just fine. So there's no medical contraindication to their no face down approach. Of course, there are those special cases where there are recurrent holes. We do fix recurrent holes in a no face down method as well. However, there are patients that don't respond to conventional surgery. And in some patients, we don't use a gas bubble at all. We use silicone oil. And in a subset of those patients, we actually use an amniotic membrane patch, which acts as a physical band-aid and can last a lot longer than any bubble. And so we found tremendous success in very difficult to close holes using an amniotic membrane patch graft. And so what we do there is we use some cryopreserved amniotic membrane and we cut uh, using a five millimeter trephine, a circle of this, and I lay this over the foveola, over the macular hole, and then I put a bubble of, of silicone oil on top of that to hold it in place. And that actually really enhances the healing effect. And we've closed some very difficult to close holes using that method. In other patients, we sometimes see very high myopia. So in myopes, the retina is physically stretched because the eye is physically larger. And sometimes we actually have to shorten the eye. So in some of those cases, I've done scleroimbrication, where we actually place six mattress sutures to physically imbricate the sclera literally shortening the axial length by about one millimeter or more. And that relieves some of the stress on the retina and allows it to oppose promoting macular hole closures. We do amniotic membrane patch grafting in very, very difficult to close cases. And we also do scleral imbrication in some of those cases as well, particularly in those high myopes. I'll look forward to seeing some of those trabismus cases that you create. Interesting that you bring that up. It's remarkable what happens. You know, when we scleroimbricate, we do a six millimeter mattress. And at the end of the procedure, that lateral rectus muscle is quite loose. In fact, uh, patients come in post-op with a bit of esotropia. It turns out that the, the lateral rectus remodels itself. So we've not had a single patient wind up needing strabismus surgery because somehow the, the, the muscle corrects the situation. It dates back to residency and the comments over how much the eye survives our learning curves and techniques and amazing. Yeah, it is. Yeah, those are some really cool surgical techniques. Just in terms of the future of kind of membrane peeling in general, I mean, it sounds like so much of this is kind of hinges upon an excellent membrane peel. What have you seen as you've gone through your career in terms of membrane peeling and what's the future for membrane peel? What, where are we headed? That's a great question. You know, prior to coming to Mayo Clinic 12 years ago, I worked uh, in an inner city population where patients had a significant amount of pigment and visualizing the internal limiting lamina was quite easier. In Minnesota, patients are, tend to be very blonde fundus and 
and visualization is a challenge. So the introduction of chromovitrectomy, where we place ICG down, indocin and green down on the, on the retina and label or stain the internal limiting lamina, that has been a, a significant boon to improving efficacy of, of membrane peeling. So chromovitrectomy has been a big advance in this area and has made the procedure much safer. I um, routinely do a full range of glaucoma tests prior to and after um, membrane peeling surgery. And the reason is, is that we're operating on the inner retina and there's always an opportunity that we might cause microtrauma to the nerve fiber layer. And using these advanced techniques of chromovitrectomy, I don't find any significant changes in visual field or in nerve fiber layer thickness. And it's only because I, I actually look for them that I know this. So I think that chromovitrectomy has made macular hole and epiretinal membrane surgery, macular surgery in general, much safer. And I think that we're going to continue to see that with some of the other agents that we can stain the inner retina with. So that's been a big help to us. There's been some discussion of the use of robots to assist in membrane peeling and perhaps other maneuvers. At this time, I think a competent vitreretinal surgeon is all you really need. And the robotic technology is not there yet. It is conceivable, however, that at some point in the future, we're going to be creating surgical techniques like cannulating retinal arterioles or venules that would be facilitated by a surgical robot. So that'll be an area to, to watch out for, to see what role does a surgical robot have in our, in our retina OR. My retina knowledge is limited, but I just have to curious. I know for a while there was thought that floaters might be addressed by some sort of vitreous sinuretic agent that you might inject and it might help to dissolve floaters or, or reduce risks. That may have gone by the wayside. I certainly know some people, I think I hear about it in certain care populations. But any role for that sort of agent or conceptually that that would help reduce the risk for epiretinal membrane or some of the things in retina, not as a floaters treatment, but for more complex vitreoretinal adherence syndromes? Floaters are one of those things that are universally annoying, and we have many patients come in looking for treatments for that. There was a lot of hope that perhaps enzymatic vitrolysis was going to have a role. It turns out that the currently commercially available agent for this has been associated with an incidence of photoreceptor toxicity. So it's not a commonly used approach. There are a group of vitreoretinal surgeons that routinely do vitrectomy for floaters. I think that it's not clear what the relative safety of this is. If, if a person has floaters that are significant enough, it's also conceivable that they have some underlying process behind that, whether it's a uveitic condition or otherwise. And there are stories of significant complications associated with vitrectomy for floaters. I think you're dealing with a slightly different patient when you actually are justified in going in surgically. Floaterectomy should never be trivialized. It is a vitrectomy. And it's likely a vitrectomy in an eye with somewhat reactive vitreous, one that may be more prone to proliferative vitreinopathy and retinal detachment, or um, overall the formation of reactive membranes. Of course, when we remove the vitreous gel from the retina, we reduce the capacity of that vitreous to incite a gliosis response in the retina itself. And a lot of these epiretinal membranes are grown from within the retina itself. So mechanically uncoupling the vitreous from the retina is probably a good thing. In a subset of patients, when PVD occurs, mm -hmm. they form epiretinal membranes because their retina is traumatized by that separation. I think that it remains to be seen what role long-term 
vitrectomy for floaters uh, has. Uh, others have been using the YAG laser to do YAG uh, vitreolysis for floaters, and this has become popular. Of course, you know, YAG for posterior capsular opacity is associated with a 1% retinal detachment rate. So I wouldn't take YAG lightly either. So the rehabilitation of patients with floater may, may rely mostly on using tinted lenses and perhaps to a lesser extent vitrectomy and YAG treatments. But this is something that we discuss with our patients regularly. And here at Mayo, we're rather conservative uh, with respect to the role of surgery for uh, floater treatment. This has been a delightful conversation. Dr. Yezzi, I've always been impressed with your passion, but also a very unique skill set that I don't know that a lot of people know, that you have a biomedical engineering background. It struck me as your colleague over the years, how much that complements you as a vitro-retinal surgeon. Can you share a little bit about that background? Because we all come into medicine with different skill sets and perspectives, but for your view, how it's affected your research, your clinical insider, surgical approach in your practice and in your career? Because I think it's nice to think about how we use those gifts in ways to directly influence patient care and our research. Well, thank you so much, Eric. You know, my approach to biomedical engineering was very intentional. I planned on becoming a physician prior to becoming a biomedical engineer. And, and in fact, I got my degree when I was in medical school because I, I worked on them together in tandem. I think you're absolutely right. My engineering background formulates my approach to surgery to a large extent. I, I think very mechanistically, and it, it guides the way I teach as well. Um, so my fellows learn about the fundamentals of the physics underlying what's going on and, and how our surgery addresses these things. You know, we talked a little bit about the physics of macular hole repair, and that comes from my biomedical engineering. Of course, you know, it does give me the ability to use those tools, those engineering tools to, to build cool things. And that's what engineers like to do. We like to build cool stuff and leverage technology. And, you know, we're doing things like building digital camera systems that can help diagnose disease and doing tissue engineering to support stem cells for macular rehabilitation, doing retinal transplantation, retinal prosthesis to restore sight to blind patients. It's very varied. One of the exciting ones is a biosensor that allows me to measure VEGF levels in patients uh, to determine what their VEGF burden is. So if we do an anterior chamber tap, we put a drop of their AC fluid of their aqueous humor down on the sensor, and it reads out what the concentration of VEGF is with the idea that perhaps we could guide our anti-VEGF treatments using actual VEGF levels. Mm -hmm. And so these are all the, the projects that I kind of get myself into and, and uh, try to leverage um, every bit of software and CAD and hardware design that I can muster. So it keeps me, keeps me busy. It's neat how through your surgical gifting, through your approach, you're helping patients. But you started out the conversation at the beginning of this talk with sharing that one of the goals that you would like to deliver to patients is to alleviate the stress, the anxiety, the guilt they have in their outcome by the fact they did something wrong. One of my mentors from the past was a corneal surgeon named Jay Kratchmer. Dear to my heart, I hear his voice in my head sometimes. And one of his comments was, when you have tough outcomes, and there's no doubt about it in retina, you guys have some of the toughest outcomes. And I remember him saying to me about one of my complications, you can either blame yourself to yourself and to the patient, which generally doesn't go well. 
you can blame the patient to yourself and to your patient, and that's not going to go well. Or you do what is the best approach is you blame the tissue. So I, <laughs> and I just would share with you, it's just, it just reminded me of that fact that patients don't like the burden that they've done something wrong to have a poor outcome. And what a nice thing is you're combining your expertise and the mechanics of surgery in a way that helps them go home and say, keep your head upright, enjoy your life, and don't worry about your outcome. It's going to be the tissue. That's a really insightful thing. I, I um, teach a vitrectomy course to incoming first-year fellows every year. I told them, be very hesitant to embrace a patient's success based upon your skills. I think it's much better for you to partner with your patient and explain that you're on the same team as them and that if they have a good outcome, it has more to do with their healing response than necessarily your skill. You know, I explain to patients that surgery is a controlled injury, that we're actually making an incision and we're, we're actually inflicting some form of controlled injury. And the outcome has to do with how effectively I make the injury and how your body responds to the injury. This concept that it's all you and that the reason why you did so well was on me, I think is not helpful as much as it is to say you did very well. And I, I had the privilege of participating in your care because if a, a result is more limited, I think, let's say, while you're in the operating room managing a complex issue, I think it's much easier to keep your wits about you uh, when you realize that you're just this patient's advocate and you're doing your best for them. I think it's very important to take that approach with patients and uh, they get a much better sense that they're being cared for. Well, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Ayazi. This was a fantastic talk. Thanks, everybody. You can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. Thank you for listening, and we definitely look forward to sharing more next week.